Hey guys, Jesse here. A special show this week. I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we do, I have a really important message for you. It's almost the end of the year. It's a great time to think about supporting a cause you care about. And I hope that you care about public radio. I know I am a supporter of public radio. I hope you'll become one. You know, public radio is a medium that you know and trust. The world has gotten less trustworthy over the last few years, and public radio really searches for reliable truth and reliable entertainment and insight into that world, even as it shifts under our feet. I'm a member of my local public radio station. I'm also a member of another public radio station that makes some shows that I really love. I grew up listening to it in my parents' living room. I listened to it when I had menial jobs on a little battery-powered pocket radio. I bet that you care about it just as much as I do. Besides that, I know that you care about Bullseye because you're listening to it and you haven't turned me off yet, despite the fact that you know I'm about to ask you for money. Uh, If you want to support Bullseye, a great way to do it is by supporting your local public radio station and telling them that Bullseye sent you. You can support your local station right now. Here's how. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye. Then tell your friends why you gave, why public radio matters to you with the hashtag YourPublicRadio. That's donate.npr.org slash bullseye. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ricky Jay died last month. He was a writer and an actor and a magician. One of the greatest sleight of hand performers ever. He could throw a playing card almost 200 feet at 90 miles per hour. 200 feet at 90 miles per hour. Now, being able to do that takes practice, a lot of practice. So he carried cards with him everywhere he went. I remember the only time I ever went to traffic school in my life. Uh, I was sitting near the back of the the class uh, watching these hideous films that they show you and dealing with stuff. And I had a deck of cards uh, in my lap, which I was moving very, uh, you know, um, I I guess uh, with no sound whatsoever, just just, – doing this carefully, and I remember the instructor saying, you must sit up in the front. You can't sit in the back. So I moved up to the front. And then, and then she said, what, what is that in your hand? And I said, a deck of cards. And she said, you have to put them away. And I said, well, I guess I do. And I put them in my pocket and stood up and walked outside, and that was it. I, I never spent another minute in the uh, traffic school. So. Just took the points. <laughs> <laughs> took the points, paid the money, and that was it. It's bullseye. This week, we're remembering Ricky Jay. You'll hear a few different interviews I've done with Ricky over the years. He was one of the first magicians to play comedy and rock clubs back in the 1960s. And it turns out that the people at those kinds of places, frankly, were not used to being tricked. And I really did have people throw punches at me and, and uh, you know, throw glasses of, of liquor, throw drinks at me. But he soldiered on. And he became one of the most adept illusionists in the world. David Mamet directed his one-man shows. He was in many, many films. He's even in the Guinness Book of World Records for his card tricks. Over the years, I talked with him about his acting, his shows, 
his research into the history of performance, even the nature of truth itself. Can deception ever lead to something good? Well, maybe the answer should be changed to yes. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ricky Jay died last month. He was 72. Jay was a regular guest on this show, or at least as close as it gets to a regular guest. He appeared a number of times. That's because I so admired him and his absolutely unique work. He was maybe the greatest sleight-of-hand artist in the world, certainly one of the greatest sleight-of-hand artists in the world. He was also a guy who wrote a book called Cards as Weapons, which was kind of a joke, but also not really a joke. One of his signature tricks, or I guess not tricks because it was not a trick, one of his signature skills was the ability to throw a playing card such that it embedded in a watermelon. As a young man in the 1960s, he toured the world opening for other acts, folks like Timothy Leary and Ike and Tina. I guess I don't know what the category folks like Ike and Tina and Timothy Leary is, but all kinds of people. As his career progressed, he became better known as himself, better known as a brilliant magic performer and sleight-of-hand performer. He also joined with his friend David Mamet and many others to become a valued technical consultant on films. The slogan of his company, Deceptive Practices, was arcane knowledge on a need-to-know basis. His performances and his books were full of arcane knowledge. He was an expert on the history of performance and particularly the history of unusual performances. Not just magic, but also the most remarkable examples of what we might later have thought of as sideshow stuff. Things like people without arms and legs who played beautiful music or painted, performing automatons, all kinds of amazing things. He was a collector who had one of the greatest collections of ephemera related to magic and unusual performance in the world. I mean, who am I kidding? Not one of the greatest. Obviously, the greatest collection of ephemera. Handbills stretching back hundreds and hundreds of years. He also worked as an actor. You might have seen him in Deadwood and Boogie Nights. Uh, In many of David Mamet's films, House of Games is one of my favorites. More than that, though, he was just Ricky Jay. I mean... His books are one of the greatest treasures in my life. I I since I just bought I bought two copies of his book Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women in the last month and I'm talking about before I heard the sad news that he'd passed away. One I gave to my friend Elliot and one was a first edition. I didn't have a hardcover so I just put it on my bookshelf. He was sly and funny and brilliant and absolutely like nobody else. His handbell and flyer collection stretched back into the 17th century. And the first time that I talked to him, I mean, I can't begin to tell you how excited I was to talk to him, was nearly 15 years ago, 2005. He'd lent part of his collection to the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco for an exhibit. And he talked to me from, gosh, I guess my college radio station in Santa Cruz via telephone. In this excerpt, he just told me that he wasn't always a scholar in the history of magic. He was originally just interested in being a practitioner. 
when did your when did your interest in this make the transformation that you described, which was between um, sort of a personal uh, sort of from a personal interest in developing your own act to sort of a general personal interest as a as a hobby or you know just something you're into, and then into something that you're you're actually a, a very genuine serious scholar about. Well, I think it was a gradual transition. It, it never occurred to me, unfortunately that I could study any of this in college. Uh, these days, one probably uh, could. There are programs in popular entertainment. What can I say? I, I, wrote, a, I, wrote, a, I wrote a paper once about the, um, the automaton chess player, and I quoted from your book. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I wish I had been clever enough to think about doing something like that. <laughs> clever or foolish enough? Well, I, I think it's a pretty safe... Uh, yeah, I guess it worked out pretty well for you. Uh, yeah, it's nice, though. With, with some of these... With some of these exhibitions, it, it, especially um, the sorts that are of um, objects or, or um, you know, sort of historical personages, things like that, they really they really strain one's ability to believe that they could possibly have been real. And I wonder, I wonder if you have any feeling about what the what the audiences might might have wanted out of something like this i mean if you're if you're talking about you know something like um uh pt pt barnum exhibiting george washington's wet nurse um who would have had to be you know 100 and some million jillion years old 61 161 years old. 161 years old um what do you think is the do you think there was some, what I'm wondering is, do you think there was some different tenor? Or do you get some feeling of, of something that, that has changed since then? Uh, or whether it's, it's consistent with the way that we look at these things, at these things right now? I, I think there, there is a consistency. I think it's more consistent than you might imagine. I, I frequently find myself uh, uttering the phrase, we're fooled in the same way and by the same things we were fooled by hundreds, if not thousands, of years ago. And that's quite a phrase to frequently find oneself mumbling. Well, I, I mumble it often when I'm being interviewed. But <laughs> nevertheless, I do mumble it. So I, I, I really do think it's the same. And while today I think it might be harder to convince a general public that a woman was 161 years old and uh, by feeding her a few lines about General, uh, general George Washington, that we have similar things. Here's, here's an example. Just this week, I received uh, uh, an article uh, that I somehow missed in the, uh, in the New York Times about a man who was a breatharian, a man claiming to live on air alone. Uh, and that reminds me of a piece in this show of uh, Anne Moore, the fasting woman of Tutbury, who in the early 19th century uh, claimed not to have eaten for a period of years. Well, I find these events equally unlikely in uh, 2005 and in 18, uh, 1820. But there it is in, in black and white in El Tiempo de Nueva York. Indeed. Uh, do you, you, it must be exciting to find a new one. Oh, it's great fun. It's really wonderful. There are a few things that are more exciting. And again, this is uh, an area where uh, real uh, walking into a shop and finding a piece strikes me as so different than finding something on the internet, which is clearly a way to obtain uh, to obtain interesting pieces. There's just something that's that's much more uh, much more. 
gratifying in this case. Uh, just, just the, I just got back from San Francisco, where I was the last few days for an event at the museum, but also for the Antiquarian Book Fair. And uh, I managed to find a couple of broadsides uh, to add to my collection in, the, uh, in this rather wonderful uh, forum with more than 220 dealers from all around the world. There's there's an appeal, and we we've been talking about sort of the the actual performances and um, the content of these pieces, but there's there's an appeal uh, as well in the artifacts themselves, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I do wax on about that in the introduction uh, to my book, uh, which uh, is called Extraordinary Exhibitions, and uh, is a book and also a catalog for this collection. Uh, that I take enormous pleasure in these pieces of paper and in the typography and in the illustrations, uh, often crude, and uh, that accompany these pieces. A little bit of my first conversation with Ricky Jay around 2005. He died last month at 72. After I had that conversation with him, I remember I went to the show at Yerba Buena in San Francisco, and I saw him sitting by himself in one of those couches that's in the middle of a of an art gallery or art museum. You know what I'm talking about, where you sit and regard the art, and he was just kind of staring into the middle distance, and I said, uh, Mr. J, my name's Jesse Thorne. I, ju- I just spoke with you the other day. And he said, uh-huh. And I said, well, thank you, and left. <laughs> Um, I didn't talk to him again for a full decade. Uh, it was early 2015. He was the subject of an episode of American Masters, the PBS series. He was the first magician ever to be profiled on the show. And uh, this was one of my favorite interviews in the history of our program. And not just because I was scared after that awkward interaction where I bothered him at the museum that maybe he didn't like me, but also because I just so admired Mr. J and his remarkable autodidactic intellect and the incredible things that he could do. I mean, he genuinely had superpowers. So I'm going to play some of that conversation now. The late Ricky J from 2015. Ricky J, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Jesse. A great place to be. So, what was uh, what was the first uh, magical magic trick, or, or I guess you t- typically call them effects that you ever rem- that you remember performing? Oh, it was some dreadful, uh, dreadful effect. Um, so you uh, weren't super good at the very beginning. Is that what you're saying? No, I no, I was dreadful. I this I lived in Brooklyn, and there was a very famous. Um, Seafood restaurant in Sheepshead Bay called. Uh, uh, good God! I just uh, Lundy's, Lundy's, uh, uh, where waiters uh, who had been there for years and years wore stripes to uh, indicate their great service, and where people flooded on the weekends, and uh, they had little coffee creamers. Uh, paper coffee creamers that they served with uh, the coffee at the tables and they could stack and I think the first effect I ever did had something to do with stacking these little paper coffee creamers and if that wasn't boring enough I'm sure I had some other things of uh, of equal excitement How did you learn to do it? Well, my grandfather uh, was uh, having dinner with me at Lundy's and (laughs) taught me My grandfather was uh, a terrific amateur magician and um, the great thing about about growing up with him 
was uh, as as skilled as he was, and his skill was considerable, his friends were some of the great magicians in the world, literally the great magicians of the world. And the piece on uh, American Masters, the film that was made, is largely about my mentors. And the major ones, or most of the major ones, with one exception, were kids that, uh, excuse me, were men that I met as a kid in, in New York. Did you naturally possess the the discipline requisite to master magic effects? It's an interesting question. I'm, I'm not sure because uh, from the moment I can consciously remember practicing all the time, it was pleasure, not pain. And people have often said to me, I mean, there were periods in my life where I practiced certainly more than eight hours a day. And people say, oh, that's just so amazing. And you would say, well, no, you, you go to some job you dislike for eight hours a day. The, the difference is that I learned more about practice as I got older and found out that, that just the number of hours was not the key to practicing successfully. One of my great mentors, Charlie Miller, who lived in Los Angeles, uh, was someone who really helped me refine the concept of practice. And it turned out that thinking about what you were doing, each move you were practicing consciously each time you did it and trying to improve it and looking at it from different angles and analyzing it from different steps was far more important than just the road. And so somewhere, I think I've even written, maybe it was as far back as Cards as Weapons in the 70s, that practice could become a meditative tool. It just became a lovely thing to do. You felt good uh, having uh, a deck of cards or coins or whatever you were working with in your hand to the point where hours and hours and hours into this, there was a certain comfort and so, yes, that's necessary on the path of becoming good at what you do, but it also, uh, I think, is overrated in terms of uh, how indicative it is of, of reaching a certain skill or mastery. It's a very funny, uh, funny area. You know, it's funny when, you're, when you describe in the film your um, childhood hanging out with your grandfather, practicing with your grandfather. There's pictures of you, like, as a teenager at... Uh, magic convention with your grandfather where your grandfather won an award for I think best card trick and you won an award for best 17 year old um, I mean not overall specifically <laughs> at magic no I think it was <laughs> nothing to do with magic <laughs> I was a well adapted teenager I... how much of your childhood and teenage years did you spend hanging out with um, 50-year-old dudes who always had playing cards in their hands. Well, there, there are a couple of things that, that are funny about that. Because one is it, 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 it gives the impression that I'm uh, any magic nerd as a kid doing magic. And on some level, I absolutely was. But ironically, I quickly stopped hanging around with, with magicians and kid magicians. And I think the reason for it was I had access to great magicians. And I think if, if I have a rap within the magic world is that I'm, I'm pretty intolerant of mediocre performance. I mean, if somebody does something for me and they want a critique in some way, just approval, if I happen to see the show of someone... Uh, my standards are unbelievably high because the people I had around me from that early age were not good. They were great. 
great. So in no way am I trying to offer some disservice to somebody who who's trying to do something and show it to me. It's just that I think there's a standard. And one of the things that makes magic so difficult on this level is that if you fool someone doing magic, the person who is fooled naturally assumes that the person who fooled them must be good. And then if a third party comes along like me and says, no, the person who fooled you is quite ordinary or mediocre or even bad, that makes you feel awful. How can somebody who's terrible have fooled me? Well, they might have fooled you by doing a magic effect invented by one person or using a prop invented by some genius or built by an extraordinary designer or using patter written by some brilliant writer. And you don't know any of that. And you're seeing someone execute it rather badly. And as my, uh, my uh, sometimes business partner, Michael Weber, says, is that magic is such a strong art, it can support really bad performers. It's just absolutely true. So it's a very peculiar situation. The other thing is you can't go on... Uh, to Wikipedia uh, and read and read the biography of a magician who doesn't list some award that they've won. It's just absolutely meaningless. You know, the, the North-Southwestern Illinois Close-Up Magic Championship won three times in a row. I mean, it, it's, it's utterly meaningless. So what, what makes sense is, is obviously... You know, attaching oneself on some level, the best being physically, but also in these days, uh, even through something like YouTube, of watching people like Vernon and Charlie Miller and trying to understand what they've done and emulating that. You'll hear the rest of my conversation with Ricky Jay when we come back from a break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Buffett, the comforter made better for you and the earth. Buffett uses natural eucalyptus to create a soothing, silk-soft fabric and rejuvenates recycled bottles into a cloud-like fill, all to create a comforter with 4.8 stars across 13,000 reviews without cruelty or waste. Visit Buffy.co to experience the complimentary 30-night trial and use code NPR to save $20 on your purchase. Did you know you can set your Amazon Echo to give you the news every morning? Just say, enable up first. Then tomorrow, say, what's the news? And start your day with up first. Hi, this is Rachel McElroy. Hello, this is Griffin McElroy. And this is wonderful. It's a podcast that we do as uh, we, may, we are married. And how's the ad going so far? Because I think it's going very good. <laughs> we talk about things we like every week on Wednesdays. One time Rachel talked about pumpernickel bread. It was so tight. You cannot afford to miss her talking about this sweet brown bread. We also talk about music and poems and, you know, weather. There is one. Weather? <laughs> one time Rachel talked about Baby Beluga, this song, for like 14 minutes. And it just really blew my hair back. <laughs> so check us out on MaximumFun.org. It's a cool podcast with chill vibes. Amber is the color of our energy, is what all the iTunes reviews say. <laughs> they will now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, we're looking back on the life of Ricky Jay, who died last month. He was a magician, a master of sleight of hand. He was an expert on the history of magic, the author of many books, including Cards as Weapons and Dice which highlighted his collection of early plastic dice and their 
remarkable and beautiful deterioration. He was also an actor. He appeared in Boogie Nights, Tomorrow Never Dies, a handful of David Mamet movies as well. We're listening to my conversation with him from 2015. I, I had this theory that I um, floated to Dick Cavett, who actually narrates the documentary and um, was a, a teenage magic enthusiast. In fact, I think he's still a lifelong magic enthusiast, as evidenced by the fact that he narrates this documentary. My do- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that you know a lot of um uh, a lot of comics get started doing magic a lot of a ver- broad variety of performers get started doing magic um and i've always wondered if it isn't to some extent a way to um engage in a a sort of ritualized version of a social interaction where if you practice enough, you will have the you, you the performer will have the power. Um, that if you can do something really cool, even if it's something very simple, um, by your high standards, you know you're a teenager. You just you practice every day for six months, and you learn to do a really cool thing. Then you can have this way. It's a way of interacting with people where um, you can predict the outcome. Well, I, I'll, I'll even go further and say that most of the people who do magic as kids and continue on with it do it because of severe social deficiencies, <laughs> that, that they're often you know, uncomfortable kids. And the thing – there's some good things that come from that. As you say, somebody can put in a lot of work for six months and people take them sort of seriously and they either use that to get better or that that's uh, a key to them doing something completely different, that they, they wind up with some, some confidence. What's bad about that is is that it, it – um, what's, what's bad about it is that it also – starts allowing you to think that you're, you're really good at something that you're not good at. And so that that's not a great thing to uh, to happen from from that time spent. When you say so really good at something that you're not good at, are you referring to magic or social interactions? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> I leave you to make up your own mind. How did your relationship to magic as a as a kid and as a teenager, reflect your emotional state and what you wanted out of the world? Well, that's tricky. I, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, I, I had an odd combination of this remarkable life with these great magicians and a family life that beside that was not good and that I rarely, if ever, talk about. So the conflation of those two things is a rather peculiar one. I will say this, that as much as I practiced and as much as I was on television as a kid, I mean, I wasn't good. I was a kid. And I didn't really think about doing magic for a living. I just knew it was something I always did and I was comfortable doing. And that's one of the things about doing it when you're so young, even if you're not great. You, you, you have no fear of being in front of an audience. Uh, you just do it. It's something that you do, and eventually that feels comfortable. And as I got older, uh, it became more and more clear that it's something I wanted to do. I, mean, I don't know how many kids would be in college and then go down to New York and be on The Tonight Show, which was 
something that I did. And then I'd go back to school. But I was also going to school, you know, the end of the 60s and the 70s. I, I wasn't in a classroom. I didn't know what the hell I was doing there. I, I would go to, uh, you know, a lodge, and uh, it was called Noise Lodge and uh, Cornell, and play The Temptations Do Runaway Child Running Wild 47 times in a row. So I could hear <laughs> Melvin say, now you're tired and hungry. You forgot to bring something to eat. Well, you know, I wasn't exactly training myself for a career in, and astrophysics. So. <laughs> Maybe in psychedelic soul production. <laughs> you could grow up to be Norman Whitfield. I watched your act in the film from when you were a young man, when you were a young adult on the Tonight <laughs> yeah. Show and stuff. And uh, one of the things that struck me about it, it's a little goofier than your act now. Um... Was that a choice that you felt like you were making then? Was it a choice to leave that behind to some extent? I mean, I've seen your show. It's very funny. Um, but it's not like... Uh, well, I don't think I There's a little element of, of that. As a, at, at any point as a doop doop <laughs> guy. But uh, if you're talking about the, the when I'm quite young and have very long hair and... Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're kind of... There's an element of you goofing around with people. Well, seriously. there. Yeah, I mean, that was a very big part of, of what I did. Did you think of yourself in, whatever, 1970 as being a hippie? No, I, I, I think that's very much part of it. I didn't. I, I just, you know, I, I suppose. the guy who happened into the electric circus? <laughs> well, the electric circus was a wonderful play. I mean, that was the, probably the first psychedelic nightclub in, in, in the country. And the acts were fascinating. I mean, Michael Grando, this wonderful mime, was there. And the music acts were uh, the Chambers Brothers and Ike and Tina Turner and Timothy Leary lecturing about acid. I mean, it was a, quite an amazing place and a lot of bikers as the clientele. And I was in there performing informally and often had people throwing punches at me and blazed on acid who would run screaming out of the club. It just was an extraordinary place to be. But I didn't think about it much as a career choice. I mean, I'm not sure how I wound up there, but I did, and I'm really happy that I did. And that probably launched me on maybe 10 years of my life in which I wound up opening for rock and roll bands or, or music of various kinds. It wasn't always rock and roll. It could often be uh, old-time, old-timey music or, or uh, jazz. Or, but I, I think I was the first magician who ever worked in that, in that arena. What, how, what is it like to be a, a magician and particularly uh, you know, a sleight-of-hand artist or close-up magician opening for like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band or whatever? Well, it was unusual, and, and <laughs> less so for the nitty-gritty dirt band than for the B-52s, which was, I think, the last of those things that I ever did. I remember people, uh, this was for, um, this was for um, uh, Bill Graham in San Francisco. It's the only time I worked for him, and I, I remember people, uh, you know, my agents thinking I had to accept this job and me knowing this was a really bad idea, and and uh, people baring their chests, literally opening up their, their, their shirt fronts to their bared chest as I was throwing cards, yelling, hit me, hit me, <laughs> wanting me to throw cards at them, and eventually me reaching the point of enough frustration that I did throw cards and managed to even uh, draw blood uh, with people. <laughs> 
who seemed to be very pleased by that result, and it was now clear to me that I needed a new direction for my own career. So uh, uh, all of the work that you've done has involved uh, deception in one form or another. It's kind of honest deception, um, but I don't know. My, da- my dad once told me this story just sort of offhandedly. He mentioned to me, oh, you know, I used to play poker a lot, and I played – I paid for my first and second years at Berkeley with money that I won playing poker. And then I beat a lineman on the football team for a really big pot, and he hung me out of the window by my ankles <laughs> until I forgave the debt. <laughs> he said, and that's the, that was the end of my poker days. <laughs> that's pretty funny. I wonder if you've ever had uh, – I wonder if you've ever had – that sort of reaction because people some people are on board i'm sure and i'm not suggesting that you're cheating anyone uh but nor was my father some people just don't like losing and or feeling like they got tricked well you're absolutely right and i've had i've run the gamut of experiences i mean in the years that i used to work uh, doing close-up magic in bars where i i literally made my living going from table to table working for tips. I mean, often there were bizarre situations. I would say a common one was you would, you would be performing for a couple and, and you would fool them and the guy would start getting very uptight. Uh, sometimes if the woman reacted too favorably to it, uh, there might be the jealous element, but it could also be simply that they were fooled and tricked and that made them uncomfortable. And I really did have people throw punches at me and, and, uh, you know, throw glasses of, of liquor, throw drinks at me. And, uh, yeah, it was all part of what happened. I worked in a bar a lot in those years, and I learned a lot. I think ultimately it all makes you a, a much more comfortable performer. But, but <laughs> yeah, there, were, there are absolutely people who do not like being fooled. What was the worst of it? Well, no, but nobody ever held me by the heels out of a window, so I, <laughs> I guess I got off pretty to, easily. Not to I, play cards with any linemen. <laughs> he kept the defensive backs. <laughs> yeah, the little guys, yeah, the fast little guys were never much of a problem. <laughs> um, why are you? Why have you in your career been attracted to uh, sleight of hand and close-up magic, and not grand stage magic? Well, I, I'm interested in grand stage magic, and I'm interested in the history of it. But personally, I, I think there's no question it, it, it was because of my childhood, this uh, dreadful and awful and uh, on one level and incredibly special on the other level, that I was just around people who were the best sleight-of-hand people of their era. I mean, that's the thing I'm most proud of in this film. I mean, here are these two filmmakers who followed me around for years, uh, Molly Bernstein and Alan Adelstein, and they put a film together. And that was the key for me. I was not so interested in doing this until I managed um, to let them become so aware of of this debt that I felt that I owed my mentors that I wanted that to be the primary the primary idea behind this and I, they were they ran with it but that's what was so exciting and they did sleight of hand so I did sleight of hand I wonder if there's some part of it as well that was um the quote unquote purity of sleight of hand magic that 
when you are doing sleight of hand, it is an expression of the purest skill of the performer, and there's no way to do a card trick with, or I'm sure there is, but it's much less likely that you would do a card trick with a freshly opened pack of cards that relies on an engineering problem rather than a physical manipulation slash skills problem. Well, it's not that's not completely true, but in terms of the purity of it, and yeah, right, and and that if yeah, if you approach it with purity, that the idea that there might be some wonderful effect that's created by engineering, even with a deck of cards, uh, I think the natural tendency of someone who is excited by sleight of hand would be, can I duplicate that using only sleight of hand, using the purity of sleight of hand? So, sure. One of the things you talk about in the film uh, when you're talking about particularly the magicians that your grandfather introduced you to as a kid was noting these particular elements of performance that weren't necessarily a specific effect. Um, and I think it – I imagine that it would be easy as an acolyte of magic – to get involved in a kind of transactional thing, which is like uh, you learn about a thing, you figure out how to do it, you practice until you can do it. Um, and your approach seems to be heavily tilted towards a more holistic view of the performance. Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, um, I, I'm the way you preface this is absolutely true, that my grandfather would let me see particular qualities of great magicians and think about them, and they were often not the things one would think about in terms of how do you become better as uh, as a burgeoning sleight-of-hand artist. For instance, uh, the great Francis Carlyle, who was a wonderful performer when I was a, a kid around New York. And my grandfather saying, from Francis, you have to learn how to give instruction. You have to learn how to make an effect important. I'm sure you've seen magic, as has almost anyone who's ever watched magic, where it, you find something perhaps dazzling, but you're not sure what was supposed to have taken place. And they're now showing you 14 variations of it and... and uh, uh, when Francis did an effect, you know, I'm going to place a card in my pocket. You know, that card is the eight of clubs. Watch it. I'm going to put another card in an envelope in my jacket. That's the two of spades. And then when those two cards t change places, it's absolutely clear. And it's said in a way that you're going to have no trouble reconstructing the action. And because of that, you're going to be excited by it. You know what was supposed to happen. And then you're able to react to it. In, in, a, in a really clear, specific way. Uh, I thought that was very important training. And, and so these are all things that I try to make part of the presentation that I'm doing, if that makes it holistic. Um, perhaps so. I, I guess I imagine that the performance of magic in some ways is a melding of sort of scientific and, and engineering ideas with more humanities-oriented ideas that, you know, part of it is the mechanics of making something happen and having the self-discipline to 
uh, rehearse those mechanics so extensively that you can pull off something that's incredibly difficult to pull off mechanically. Um, and part of it is about creating the rhythm and the story and the sort of social engineering that's required to make something small or something big seem amazing, seem compelling. Well, I think those things are all true. And what you get to eventually with all of those uh, those elements, the mechanics, the chops, everything that goes into it is eventually the ability to perform. You know, what is the experience like for someone in the audience? And ultimately, that that's the thing that I think is most important. All of these other things are simply tools, including how the effect is done. Even that is not the most essential thing. I mean, that's what's so strange about people to whom the sum total of this magical experience is, do I know how the magician did what he did? shouldn't even matter on some level. It's ultimately, if you've gone to the theater or wherever it is that you happen to be watching this, which could be uh, your own house or, or a local pub, it doesn't much matter. You know, what is that experience like? And that's the real essence. And so the performance in no way can be uh, underestimated. If anything, it's got to be just the opposite. I mean, nothing would be more exciting for me than, than the thought that if I did something, somebody might remember this, you know, for weeks or months or even for the rest of their life. That, that's what's important. What would you like an audience to leave your show having experienced or, or having gained? Well, I, I think mostly just that feeling of entertainment, having feel, having felt entertained. And, and I think laughter is the other thing that's so great, that, that it's not so much I was fooled and I'm constantly, and because I was fooled, I'm worried that this man may get into my head you know, or, or be able to somehow affect my life on some peculiar level, but rather that being fooled might make me laugh and, and hearing some story that was exciting might make me think about that story again in a similar circumstance. I mean, I think that's, that's what I'm looking for as a, as a performer. You know, deception uh, taken on the whole is uh, usually seen as a negative thing in the world. You've sort of dedicated your life to it. I wonder if you have dedicated your life to it because you want to have uh, power over a demon or if you've dedicated your life to it because you think there's some untapped well of goodness and value in it. <laughs> It's a great question, but I, I don't think I could go as far as to say I think there's some untapped well of goodness. I'm, <laughs> I'm really intrigued by it. And I, I suppose if I had to, to come up with a one-word description of what I'm interested in, and I, I do think I have a broad, a broad range of interests. Uh, if someone said you had to choose only one word, I might say deception. Um, I, I found last night that, that I was... Um, uh, for a book I was writing, I was doing some research, and I was describing a man who I'm very interested in who lived from, this is what the book is about, from 1674 to 1739, and describing what he did. And at the same point, I, I ran across a description of a centaur 
apparently appearing in London uh, shortly after that, uh, in the the middle of the 18th century. Well, I got incredibly intrigued. I had seen one reference to this years before. And suddenly, in an era where Google exists, and I really, really have mixed feelings about such a thing, uh, to the point where a book like uh, Learned Pigs and Fireproof (laughs) Women, which um, you were so kind to do a piece on not so long ago, uh, my first fairly serious uh, history uh, history of unusual entertainers, where I'm talking about deceptions of various kinds, um, I find this playbill, and I'm saying that that was written in an era pre-Google, long before before Google, and you can uh, have access to, to in- interesting materials. And I was able to immediately search some 18th century records. This was last night at 3 in the morning. And, and found uh, an advertisement in an 18th century newspaper for the arrival of the centaur in London. I found an advertisement for a pamphlet written about the centaur. I found the pamphlet written about the centaur. I read the pamphlet written about the centaur. You know, this half man, half horse. And then I found... Uh, I found the man who wrote this, uh, a fellow named Richard Bentley, and it was a complete hoax. Well, how could it have been otherwise? <laughs> but the idea that it was written as a hoax. Are we I mean, breaking the story that there's no such thing as centaurs? <laughs> well, we're on the cutting edge here, Jesse. I, I think perhaps we are. I, uh, you know, but but am I delighted by that? Well, you can hear in the way I'm telling it. Absolutely, completely, thoroughly delighted by it. I mean, one thing was, I, I mean, there were great things in this, that, that the centaur spent, um, you know, he only performed at certain hours because he spent much of the day currying himself <laughs> in advance of his actual appearance before the public. And, and then the story that he was a French sailor mounted upon a stuffed horse. I mean, it's just every new sentence was just wonderful. So I'm a little weary today, but much happier for having gone through this experience. So in your books, you write about magic. You've written about hoaxes and deceptions. I mean, you know, whatever it may be, the Mechanical Turk or something like that, which was uh, presented as a mechanical chess player, but was actually, as it turns out, a tiny person inside uh, who was really good at chess. May may I stop you? That's one uh, one of the things that's fascinating about about history is a statement like a tiny person concealed in a machine playing chess. Um, I I don't know how many times that error has been made since 1769, but but the idea of a human being who might inhabit a mechanical machine and enable it to play chess is certainly possible. The idea that that person need be tiny is not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, so that's fair. Um, uh, you, I'll just say I'm a pretty big person. I'm not inclined to get into any machines to play chess. I've seen people bigger than you. <laughs> <laughs> get into machines to play chess. <laughs> if I thought there was actually a person who got into a machine to play chess, I would say yes. So, um, you know, things that are hoaxes, but also things that are just unusual and involve remarkable skill. I mean, you know, people uh, people without arms and legs who paint with their uh, with a brush held between their teeth. Sure. 
Um, but you see, let me go back to this mechanical chess player thing, because I think there's something really important about this. So here's a figure built in 1769 that, that's a slightly smaller than life-size Turk sitting behind a chessboard and literally playing against all comers and winning an extraordinary number of games, this wind-up mechanical Turkish chess player. And in fact, I'm willing to admit to you that it is not a real automaton, and it's one of the first great magic uh, cabinet effects. And it is a fraud, and it is a hoax, but it has this remarkable career. What excites me about it... A career of decades and decades yes, and decades. decades and decades. Yeah, long after the original inventor, a man named von Kempelen, dies, and it's bought by other people. It's bought... Uh, so here's a machine that's bought in 1769 and exists all the way until 1854 when it's burned in the Chinese Museum in Philadelphia. Uh, and then there are imitators of it as well, as there often are. But here's what I find exciting, is that Edwin, Edwin, the Reverend Edmund Cartwright... Uh, hears about this machine that plays chess, and he says, if there's a machine that can play chess, I can invent the power loom. He's working on the idea of can a loom actually be made to work mechanically. And he does. So using deception and false knowledge, he creates a power loom that has, you know, an enormously important impact on the Industrial Revolution. And also uh, Charles Babbage and, and the whole computer world which follows him is influenced by the chess player. And Alexander Graham Bell, you know, and the invention of the telephone also has something to do with this mechanical chess player. Well, I find that just, just beyond intriguing to actually exciting. You know, how can false knowledge lead to something good? Well, you were saying before, can deception ever lead to something good? Well, maybe the answer should be changed to yes. Ricky Jay from 2015. The American Masters episode about Ricky is called Ricky Jay Deceptive Practice. It's a beautiful summation of his life and career. You can stream it online, and uh, I suggest that you do so. Bullseye continues after a quick break. Still to come, my final conversation with Ricky Jay and a celebration of one of his greatest books. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. Hey, it's Janet Varney of the JV Club podcast, and I am so excited to be joining Maximum Fun. If you're not yet familiar with the JV Club, it's a podcast with me and some of my favorite women, and in the summer, men, as we explore the highs and lows of our terrible teenage years into what I like to call our adult lessons. For example, you can hear about Allison Bree's humiliating moment at a gymnastics competition. You can hear about Jesse Thorne's incredibly salty language in English class. Or let Busy Phillips tell you how she met Sharon Stone at an Arizona toy fair, somehow. You can join me and all my once awkward friends every Thursday by subscribing to the JV Club at MaximumFun.org. Hey gang, it's Jesse again. A reminder, we're approaching the end of the year. 
It's a great time to make a contribution to your local public radio station. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye to support your local public radio station. Then tell the world why with the hashtag YourPublicRadio. Again, that's donate.npr.org slash bullseye. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, we're doing something a little different. We're looking back at the life of one of my favorite Bullseye guests ever, Ricky Jay. He died last month at the age of 72. He was an actor and a magician, one of the greatest sleight-of-hand performers who ever lived, uh, and also, perhaps most importantly, a man who could pierce a watermelon with a playing card. He was also the author of a bunch of books, including many about the history of magic and unusual performance. The books he wrote focused on overlooked figures, the people nearly forgotten by history, who he found through his extraordinary research. The last time I had him on the show was in 2016. He had a new book out at the time about Matthias Buchinger. Buchinger was an artist and calligrapher, born without hands or feet, and only 29 inches tall. The book was named after Buchinger's billing. It was called Matthias Buchinger, The Greatest German Living. There is a wonderful segment of your book, which I would describe as uh, Ricky Jay shows his famous friends uh, and expert friends uh, some Matthias Buchinger stuff and says, hey, what do you think of this? Um, what did you settle on as far as your feeling about how these pieces were created? Well, I, I'll go to that in a sec. I think first, yeah, I do have some friends who are well-known artists. And, and the reason I was asking them for their opinions on Buchinger is because they're well-known artists. That, right. That, that sure, was the course. point of that. And they're widely varied. And they had different views, and I do find what they had to say exciting. So these are people that go from uh, Art Spiegelman to Eric Fischel and April Gornick and Tom Sachs and David Hockney. And I mean, the list goes on not much longer than that, but to have people commenting on how they think he made these drawings. And the reason for that is probably the first question anybody asks me. And it's very much like, how did he do this trick? It's very much like the question asked the magician, not um, about the beauty of it or the context of it or how he learned it, but how, in fact, someone was capable of doing calligraphy this tiny. And most people naturally go to the next, uh, the, the seeming answer to that, which is he must have used magnification. If, in fact... One needs magnification to see the piece. Wouldn't one need magnification to create the piece? And I think of, of the, the people that I asked, most of the people who had a real knowledge of calligraphic skill were more inclined to think that he did not use magnification. And I should say, and this is emphatic, that I have never come across a single document that ever says that he's using magnification in his ability to create these pieces. I mean, one of them seems like it is, and it's one that you would actually have a unique uh, insight into as a performer relative to David Hockney, for example, is simply that as soon as he introduces magnification, it's a less cool show. Well, 
I, I would say that I, I kind of disagree with that because I'm a great believer in, in what Hockney talks about magnification in terms of painting. He's written an awful lot about that. That that the idea that early artists, Van Eyck and many people that he writes about, used magnification doesn't, to me, take away from the beauty of their art whatsoever. The difference is that the beauty that we're talking about in Buchinger's case, in, in, in this specific case, is in fact the size of what he was able to render. And that's what makes the argument different in, in both cases. You uh, write in the book that you fell not that long ago and broke a rib and um, some stuff in your hand and wrist. I know that the kind of performance that you do involves incredibly long-term diligent practice, like everyday practice at a very small scale with both hands. Hmm. What was it like for you when that happened? Well, it, it was uh, pretty frightening. Um, I had a, a titanium plate and seven screws placed in my wrist and had to have a second operation after that. Um, but it did allow me, I think, to get a little closer to Buchinger in the sense of realizing that there were some things I had to rethink. It wasn't simply a matter of being able to do everything I've done before, but I think realizing as I probably will be unable to do everything I've done before, I certainly am going to be able to do uh, a great deal of what I did before, that I have to approach things in a slightly different way. I have to rethink them. And I believe that that's what Buchinger did when he approached uh, the cups and balls, that his method for uh, lifting a cup and revealing a live bird would be quite different than the method of someone who, uh, who wasn't uh, conformed as he was. Had you ever gone an extended period of time without practicing, say, just pre working with a deck of cards? That's uh, – I realize no one's asked me that before. Um, no, I'd have to say um, I haven't. And that's maybe one of the strangest things now that, um, yeah, I'll, I'll actually leave the house occasionally without a deck of cards in my pocket. Oh, I do have one now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, for many years of my life, I, uh, I wouldn't leave. Also, of course, they were my chosen method of self-defense. If I were attacked on the street, that's what I'd want to have with me. So. What have you been able to regain and, and regain less? It's it's hard to say in terms of percentage. I've never really thought about that. But the cards don't feel as good as they should in my hand all the time. And I realize that practice uh, of that kind of duration often has more to do with comfort than it does with a specific skill. We're into a, a very specific area about practice and how one practices and are they actually trying to make each time they perform something better or to understand it in fuller context. And I think that's important in terms of improvement. But I also think that there's a certain amount of pleasure derived from simply having an article that you're comfortable with in your hands. And I think in Cards as Weapons, I actually joke about a deck of cards being a meditative tool, but it's not that much of a joke. Uh, there really is some genuine comfort that comes from that. One of the things that this book is about, above and beyond it simply being about Buchinger the man is about you and this kind of lifelong pursuit that you've had of these little scraps of information. And when I say little scraps of information, I guess I mean it literally often um, about this man and his life. I, I wonder if you could tell me um, 
the furthest you've gone to acquire something in your really extensive collection? I mean, not the literal furthest, but what is the most you have done to get a, a thing? I, I don't think I can reveal those machinations. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was talking to this stranger on a train. Exactly. And... <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I, I mean, there are stories that, that I tell in the book. Well, uh, for instance, I'm happy to tell you the story of the first piece I acquired, which was from the magician Melbourne Christopher that we spoke of earlier. Christopher, as I mentioned, was friends with my grandfather, and he was quite a formal fellow. I remember the first time I said to him, uh, Mr. Christopher, um, I'm really interested in Matthew Buchinger, and do you think it would be possible for me to come over and see your collection, and particularly the pieces relating to Buchinger? And he said, uh, I'm kind of busy this year, Ricky. <laughs> I managed to overcome that, which in itself may answer your question. But uh, eventually, um, by calling him every time I, I came back to town, he did invite me over, and uh, we renewed our friendship from when I had been much younger, and uh, at the time, I, I'm guessing I was in my 20s. Uh, I happened to get a job performing in the Shakespeare Festival in Central Park. It was actually my first acting job. I was hired initially as a consultant to do a levitation of Titania from the Bower in uh, Midsummer's Night Dream. Uh, and uh, I was also offered a role in the in the play. And so uh, he lived uh, very close to the park on Central Park West. And uh, many times during the run of, of my particular summer in, uh, in New York, uh, I wound up going to his apartment. And, you know, we really enjoyed talking about magic and the history of magic. And one day he said to me, uh, 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 Ricky, I'm planning to sell uh, duplicates from my collection that are in my house in Baltimore. And if you'd like to choose one, I'd be happy to have you do that. He said, I won't give it to you, but I will give it to you at a – I will sell it to you at a fair price, which I'm sure would be uh, considerably less money than the auction house, uh, Swan Auctions in New York, uh, would be selling it for. And I came over to his house, and um, I looked at many objects, and I chose a book that was uh, a truly rare book. It was actually the first magic book ever published in New York, uh, the Dukenick edition of uh, Hocus Pocus Jr. by Henry uh, – excuse me, Hocus Pocus, not Hocus Pocus Jr. <laughs> by Henry Dean. And uh, this one from 1817. And, and he seemed very upset uh, that I had chosen this even though he was trying not to. And it turned out this was really the book he wanted to feature in the sale. So he offered me – he said, well, could I possibly take something else? And I chose another book and uh, he complimented me on it. But the other book happened to be imperfect. It wasn't completely intact and I think he saw that I was a little upset. Uh, even though I was trying not to be, and he was being very generous. And so he said, well, may I offer you something else? And I said, well, what I'm really interested in, you can offer because it's not a duplicate. I said, I know you have two drawings by Matthew Buchinger, but as they're drawings, you know, they, they can't be, they're unique, they're drawings. And he said, let's look at them. And he took out the two drawings, and we, we stared at them for a while. And, and then he said, pointing to the smaller of the two, uh, um, what would you be able to give me for this? And I had just agreed to buy this other book for, um, even though it was a reasonable price, what for me then was a lot of money. 
and I blurted out a figure which was incredibly small. I mean, I can tell you, I, I said fifty dollars, um, and he looked horrified. And he said, is that all you think it's worth? And I said, no, no, no. You asked me what I could afford to pay. And I should mention at this time that I was making, I think, $90 a week in the New York Shakespeare Festival and living on a friend's couch on 37th Street under a sign which said, we do not lease to theatricals. <laughs> and uh, I just didn't have money. And he, he said, could you make it 75 And I said, of course. And he went uh, uh, out of the room and came back with the piece. And he then put it between the hard covers of another book, which was actually quite a desirable book, a biography of the magician Robert Heller. And he put it in this other book and handed it to me and said, a stiffener to keep the, the piece, the drawing on vellum from being in any way mangled. And that's how I got my first, uh, my first booking or drawing. It seems to me that Part of the uh, appeal of collecting and part of the appeal of learning magic, at least as, as you've described it to me and, and um, have described it elsewhere, is that kind of small-scale, intimate relationship with someone else who really loves this thing that you love, um, like whether it's 65 Mustangs or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that there's so many stories in this book that are about I went over to this guy's apartment so he could show me his stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, collecting is uh, – on some level, it's, it's the same whether you're meeting with someone who's an expert in, in the field in sleight of hand and, and then someone who, who doesn't perhaps perform magic at all. Certainly the vast majority of people who collect these rarities are, are not performers. But they can often exhibit extraordinary passion about them. And you do wind up in, in these tiny little worlds where you're discussing uh, this utterly arcane material. And, uh, yeah, one, one would say I've, I've traversed uh, many, many a country looking for pieces and getting into crazy situations with folks. And I think there are a lot of stories in the book about being unable to purchase things initially and able to then get them 20 years later or 35. The, the story about the Melbourne Christopher and, and the two pieces that he had, the one that he sold me then, literally a couple of weeks before I finished the book, I was actually able to obtain the other piece, which had <laughs> eluded me for 35 years. Do you find that when you are reading about these people who put on these elaborate and unusual forms of performance, that admiration is one of the main feelings you have towards them, even when the performances can lean towards the you know the absurd or the ridiculous yeah i think i'm i'm more inclined to enjoy them when they lean towards the absurd <laughs> or the ridiculous but sure yeah yeah absolutely well will you there there are these lovely verses describing bookinger in the book um and we talked briefly before we came in here and you have a clear favorite and even know a bit of it. And I wonder if you might recite what you can. Well, it's from a broadside that, that may indeed be unique. Um, uh, and it's called Matthew Buchinger, The Greatest German Living, uh, hence the title of my book. And uh, 
I'll see if I can remember enough of it to make some sense. See gallants wonder and behold this German of imperfect mold. No legs, no feet, no art, no hands, but all that art can do commands. First thing he does, he makes a pen. Is that a wonder? Well, what then? Why, next he writes and strikes a letter, no Elzevirian type is better. Upwards, downwards, backwards, forwards, and short to every compass point, though shortened at the elbow joint. The foliage round it he displays does more our admiration raise. For hair figures, to the eye they pass, but their letters through a glass. Thus he with double art can write, at once to please and cheat the sight. Well, Ricky, I sure appreciate you coming back to be on Bullseye, and I hope you'll uh, come back whenever you're up to one of these amazing things that you're always up to. My pleasure. I'd love to come back. Ricky Jay from 2016. The book we were talking about is called Matthias Buchinger, The Greatest German Living. Every week on Bullseye, we wrap up the show with a recommendation from me called The Outshot. A couple of years ago, I did one about a book of Ricky's, perhaps his most successful book. I think it was a bestseller that has brought me so much joy in my life since I picked it up randomly at a used bookstore in college. I can't even begin to tell you. It's one I've bought for friends as gifts. In fact, it is probably the one. You probably have a book like this, the one that I will buy for a friend as a gift. Whenever I see it, it's, it's been out of print for a little while. Anyway, let's take a listen. In 1785, a pig appeared in London. That's how one of the chapters starts. It keeps going. He and his successors inspired the attention, however fleeting, of Samuel Johnson, William Wordsworth, Pierce Egan, Mary Wollstonecraft, Thomas Rowlandson, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and William Blake. He was the subject of political satires, caricatures, and portraits. Robert Southey declared he was, quote, a fair greater object of admiration in the English nation than ever was Sir Isaac Newton. Those paragraphs, which are about a pig who spelled and did math, would seem crazy in the context of basically any book. But between the covers of Ricky Jay's Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women, they seem perfectly ordinary. If you don't know Jay, he's a sleight-of-hand artist, a magician. His book, Cards as Weapons, is the foremost text on the subject. The only text on the subject, I hope. He's also a scholar of strange performances. It's from that well that learned pigs and fireproof women springs. The book is 300 pages of bizarre, amazing, and unbelievable entertainers, and their bizarre, amazing, and unbelievable entertainments. For example, Datus, the memory man, who answered correctly from memory 50 questions a night as posed by the audience. Or a man named LaRoche, just LaRoche, who encapsulated himself in a steel ball, then rolled up and down a perilous spiral track with no walls. Or Malini the magician, billed as the most marvelous of master prestidigitors. 
One chapter is concerned solely with performers who lacked legs or arms, or both legs and arms, as was the case for a painter of miniatures named Miss Biffin. She held the brush in her mouth. One newspaper advertisement reproduced in the book from 1788 reads, STONE EATER. It's in capital letters. STONE EATER. The public are most respectfully informed that the exhibition in future will be this and every day from 12 to 3, and on account of the numberless applications, after the exhibition has been closed every evening from 7 to 9 at number 10 Cockspur Street, Charing Cross, admittance half a crown. The Stone Eater hopes ladies and gentlemen will indulge him by a few minutes' attendance as the many visits he receives a day render a short delay unavoidable. In this book, there's even this man named Joseph Pujol, known as Le Petomane, which translates, apparently, as the fartomaniac. It would be easy to laugh at these crazy performances and the crazy ancient people who presumably paid to attend them. And it is, if I'm honest, impossible to read the book without laughing. But Ricky Jay doesn't hold himself above these men and women, or even above the tightrope-walking donkeys. He comes by his great passion because he, too, is a performer. He understands the astonishing accomplishment of the man who jumps off a 75-foot platform with a noose around his neck, the ingenuity of the spiritualist and the spiritualist debunker, even the craft of the fartiste. What makes Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women special is the way the bond of show business ties all these men and women and creatures together by their greatest common element. Whether they began their lives with some traveling circus or in the literal, actual poorhouse or without any arms or legs, they dedicated those same lives to all of us. They just wanted to entertain. And in remarkable ways, they did. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. I want to just take this opportunity to thank Ricky Jay um, for having spent the time that he did here while he was alive. It meant a lot to me. Uh, his work has meant so much to me over the years, and I've it's just brought me a, a lot of joy and wonder, and um, he was a very remarkable man. So I, I thank him, and um, I, I tip my cap. And... Our thoughts here at Bullseye are with his family, his wife, Chris Ann, who came with him to do the interviews. And um, yeah, I, I feel very lucky to have spent some time sitting in a room talking to him. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where the rain was profoundly diagonal today. Uh, like it was pouring rain, then totally clear, then pouring rain again in at least a 45-degree angle. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. 
Better microphones than we used to have in 2005, as I think the sound on this week's episode evidences. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson with help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan. Our thanks also to the publicist at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, who was kind enough to book that interview with Ricky Jay when I was 24 years old, I'm going to say, and doing a radio show in Santa Cruz, roughly two hours from the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. Uh, she, she could tell that I really wanted to do it, and she set it up for me. So thanks to her. Don't remember what her name was, but, uh, but big thanks. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, there are hundreds of them on our website. Go to MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, spend some time this week getting to know Ricky Jay. Buy one of his books. You know, go, go on to a used book website and buy one of his books. Or uh, check out his special, Ricky Jay and his 52 Assistants, which you can watch on streaming services. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.